Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Film Roundtable. Uh, thanks for joining us. And of course, don't forget to subscribe, like and follow us at our Instagram, YouTube and podcast. So you can hear this wherever you are. Um, so today I want to welcome uh, two very talented and special guests. Uh, we've got two great cinematographers joining us from, well, this, this roundtable is actually coming from around the world. I'm in Sydney. Uh, Larkin, I, I believe you're in London. I'm in Los Angeles. Oh, you're, you're in Los Angeles. And Jamie, you're in London? Yes. Nice. Okay. Well, we've got the uh, very talented Larkin Seifel. Seifel. Um, yes, I didn't get that wrong. Uh, coming to us from Los Angeles. He, of course, uh, is known for many, many fantastic looking projects. Um, Childish Gambino music video. Uh, I believe it was one of them, Gaslit, the great series Gaslit with Julia Roberts. I think it was nominated for an Emmy. And the main reason for being on the show today is to discuss the mind-bending, everything, everywhere, all at once. Welcome to the show, Larkin. Thanks for having me. And we're very excited to have you on, on the show. And we're uh, just as excited to have Jamie Ramsey, SASC, very talented cinematographer coming from London. Jamie's known for, again, a lot of beautiful, beautiful films, and um, especially more recently, living with Bill Nye, that was uh, just awarded a bronze frog at Camera Image, I believe. Congratulations on that. Also known for Mothering Sunday, see how they run, and many other films. So thanks for joining us, Jamie. Cool, so I'm gonna start with, uh, just gonna lead off with you guys. I think, um, you can... You guys just met for the first time recently at Camera Image, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry to have to bring you together again so soon. I know you probably <laughs> can't stand each other right now. We really missed each other because we became best friends in the space of one night. So now we, this is really nice. Now that we can be friends again over Zoom. Camera <laughs> <laughs> no, is a... Is a it's one of those cathartic environments where DOPs actually get to meet one another, you know, which is a super rare situation, you know. So you you, you get you get you get lubed up by uh, copious amounts of vodka, and you get to talk about your onset stories. So it's it's such a cathartic, uh, really cool experience. Uh, probably not a good a good idea to go for longer than four days, but if you end up going for the whole stretch, you know, um, you really just have to face yourself. But yeah, it's super cool. Yeah, it's wonderful. You spend your whole time basically like tightly packed into bars or parties or random rooms or out in patios, just kind of catching up with people you've never met before. I've actually will see the same people every time I go back because all my friends in London will just fly down because it's just like, you know, an hour flight or whatnot. And we'll just show up and it's like a giant reunion half the time. We also used to meet, to meet so many new people, which is great. Like it's the only time you actually get to meet other cinematographers that don't live in your neighborhood. It's one of the best things about, I think, cinematographers. We always, I feel like we're always collaborative. We always help each other out. We're always happy to discuss. Uh, I, never, I, never, I never feel like anyone's precious about what they do. But um, let's, let's, let's get on to the conversation about these two amazing films. I'm interested to know, you know in terms of your, your choice of projects, how do you, do you ever consciously choose a project based on the script? Are you ever turning anything down? Um, what, what drew you to these particular films? Let's start with you, Jamie. I think one thing I've always been super stringent about is just my choice of long form projects. And it's, it's, it, it's twofold. It, on, on the one hand, it's because um, 
you know, the quality of film and, and my emotional connection are hand in hand, right? So it, the script has to, has to speak to me on such a deep level for me to actually give enough of myself to make something amazing of it, you know? And, and you know, the other aspect of it is, is um, you know, um, as a cinematographer coming up in this day and age of, of, of film, um, you really, I really think you have to curate your projects so carefully because your projects are an extension of you. So if, you know, if, if you want to represent yourself via, via your work, your choice of projects is how you do that, you know. So I think primarily it's, it's the thing of what's going, to, what's going to make my heart beat, what's going to make me um, want to engage at such a level that I'm going to make something amazing. And then the other thing is, you know, um, what represents me as a cinematographer and my taste, you know, taste is such an important thing. Yeah, well, well said. Well said. What about you, Larkin? Um, yeah, the curation's a, the scary part, I think, about reading scripts, because you can read scripts that you love, but you're kind of like, is, is this what I want to do Like later? Is this the movie that I want to like continue? Because like, I've read movies that I, I love, but I'm like, I don't think I'm actually, like, it's going to be what I wanted. Like, film, it's not a film that represents what I like about visuals. Um, but in general, I, I think, you, like you were saying, Jamie, has to you, if you don't connect to it, like, full-heartedly, you want to pour yourself into it. I say you have to like you basically should only do movies that you would want to do for free or would be, be you would beg to be a part of it. Sure. Um, usually, when I get scripts, I get them blind, like no budget, no cast. I just want to read them pure. Um, sure. I will ask for the film shooting because that will I will determine if I'm actually going to do it. But I like to like make it, it's much easier to go in and just see the story as raw pure form and then love it and then maybe they have a huge budget and a great cast or maybe it's an indie with nothing and they want to shoot it in the backyard but um yeah i think if you connect with the script i mean for this i mean i'll i've worked at the daniels for a long time and so i you know they could shoot the phone book and i'd be like let's do it like i'm gonna just say yes to that um for this project but generally it's a much pickier process and it's it's a lot it's a lot easier to say no I think it feels better to say no. It's almost scary to say yes to projects now because you're just, you know, they're dedicating that half a year or full year of your life to this, like, you know. The period of time of your life. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You're kind of like by saying yes, you're saying no to like so many other possibilities. It's a, it's a, it's a spicy challenge. It's a, it's a fun time. There's no one favors if you, if you, if, if you as a cinematographer take a project half-heartedly because A, you will never ever be a hundred percent into it, and 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 therefore you'll never give the project a hundred percent of yourself. So ultimately, the project will suffer. So it's 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 actually such um, you know a, a good thing to just pull back right at the front of it. You know, do either one of you have families? I have two <clears throat> kids, so it's a it's a yeah. I've been I've been shooting a lot more locally for the past you know four or five years. <laughs> How old are your kids? Uh, three and five. Three and five. Yeah, I'm, I've got six and eight. I've got uh, I've got two succulent uh, cactuses in the lounge, and and I've got a couple of um, plants outside my bedroom which get naturally watered by the British rain. Um, and I've got my surfboard here, which is, you know, I got to keep it like um, waxed as well. You know, it's quite important. So yeah. For the day that you might actually get to use it, you mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. you take it to the wave pool you know <laughs> we obviously love what we do and the world and i think that's what's you know drives us all essentially but it is a commitment and, and there are sacrifices to make and how you know how do you balance that 
uh I think having children is the worst thing you can do for your career. <laughs> That's like the most blunt way of putting it. Um, for me, it was the best thing I could do for my life. But like, I think I actively, especially once we had a second one, it was like, okay, this isn't like, you know, just even when I work in town, you know, you're working minimum 13 hours, 14 hours of travel. So even if you're there, you're not going to see them. You know, you, you leave before they wake up and you're back before they go to sleep. Um, it does give you a lot more perspective and changes your life. But like, you know, I've, again, I've all of a sudden, you know, taken a lot more shows in town. Um, I've still been picky and I was really lucky to find good projects in town. Um, I'm also really lucky that I'm able to lead on commercials when I'm not doing films, which is really nice. So I think that's, I think that's also like, a, like, you know, wildly important to have commercials to lean on because I've had friends that are feature DPs that can't do that. And so they'll wait six months, then go, I have to shoot a feature. I have to do it just for financial reasons. And so they try to pick the best option at that time. But I think, you know, and Jamie, I know you shoot a lot of commercials too. Like, I think we have this beautiful luxury of we get to wait for something good, um, which is like, you know, kind of goes part and part with like the idea of having kids, but also the ability. Like, I think the worst scenario is being stuck in features and having five children and you're just always out of town because you have to just pay for them to live and they hate and they resent you for it <laughs> no but uh yeah I mean I think you just end up picking in my you know my wife and family are really supportive of they're like you know like if you love the movie go do it we'll figure it out or we'll come with you again it was easier when there was one I like did a movie in New York and that was great but with two I'm like is it worth it to bring two it's just gonna be like <laughs> You know, we keep talking about doing movies in Europe in the winter. And I'm like, you're just going to be stuck in an apartment and it's going to be raining and you're just going to hate me. <laughs> I know the food will be better and we have some friends there, but it doesn't matter. In the end of the day, it's just you and two kids in a tiny, in a tiny spot. <laughs> like, stay home. It'll be better. I'll fly back. But also just, you know, you have to just fly home on the weekends, even though it sucks. Like every two weeks, you just take like the red eye Saturday. You're there for like 18 hours and you fly back on Sunday. But you just have to be present in your life. But yeah, anyway, so needless to say, I've been working in town far more often. Jamie, what about you? I mean, do you feel like you've had to sacrifice for this career in any way? I, th I think I think so. So my, my relationship with sacrifice is like 20 years long, you know. So um, when I first fell in love with cinematography, it was in film school, really, you know. And I, I knew the moment that that, that 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 relationship was formed, that it would be the, my fundamental relationship in my life. Um, and I, I, the moment that that happened, I put it before uh, all friendships, all family, all relationships, um, you know, so I've missed integral birthdays of friends. I've missed weddings. I've missed, uh, you know, christenings. I've missed, you know, <laughs> funerals. Um, you know, um, uh, I've missed my birthday so many times. And you know, during, like, I look at a career as like a graph, you know, and, and there's this like strong phase of like the hustle, the hustle phase, you know, and in the hustle phase, um, you know, the career uh, ostensibly comes first, you know, and you miss so many things. And that's the, that's the, the equation that you, um, that you make and, and the agreement that you make, you know, and um, it, it does get to a point where you, look at yourself and you say okay fine I'm, I'm actually I've reached a point now where um you know the the balance has shifted a little bit and and the leverage is a bit more on my side and um I I actually want to start participating a bit more in life and you know that that hit that hit me about I, I guess like five four five years ago four five years ago something like that where where I said to myself you know I I need to 
to make a definitive choice of, of, of actually putting some life first in, in my world, which, which I started to do. And, um, you know, I started to, you know, make, make plans and actually stick to plans and, and put plans before work, which was such a wild thing for me, because I think as a freelancer, you, you live in this, this psychology of make hay whilst the sun shines, you know, because you never know where the next job is going to come. And um, unfortunately, that's a stigma that's attached to you because of this arch of, 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 of work life that you that you go across, you know. And um, so for a large part of my career, it's always been work first, work first, work first. Um, and, and then it got to a point where I was like, you know what, I, I need to I need to actually what, what is the point of all of this work? You know, it's 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 gratification on, on, a, on a creative level. But, you know, where the relationships, where's the love, where the experiences, where the memories and um, you know, I started putting some some of that first, but then it becomes a balance. You know, gents, to be honest with you, it's got to be a balance because it it can't it can't be one sided either either way. You know, so I, I think it's just being pragmatic for me anyway. As a person who doesn't have a family and kids and stuff, it's it's just a pragmatic balance of 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 where that line lies. And um, you know, for instance, this year was my fortieth birthday. Don't tell anybody. Oh, happy, happy birthday for whatever number it was. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. Uh, but but I had planned for many years to go to Ibiza with my friends, and you know that was the big plan. And you know I, I put it into action, and I got multiple people involved, which was a, a hell of a situation. To, I should have hired a production manager to do it, but I didn't. Anyway, anyway, but but, but I stuck to it and, and had um, had this had this birthday, which was epic. And it's probably the first birthday in a long time that I've actually taken time out to celebrate with people, and that was wonderful. But you know. Hey, listen, anything that you do that's worth having is there's a lot of investment involved, you know. So same with cinematography, man. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's you know, it's it's interesting. I, I was very much the same, you know, like I only thought about my career. I never actually wanted a family, I never wanted to have that. It was like career, career, career. And when and when eventually you know, I mean, I just like you, I've missed many things. Um, but that's kind of part and parcel of the of the of the contract you make with yourself, you know, when you, when you, I guess, you don't, I think you, I don't think you, anyone really realizes it when they get involved in the film industry. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, it's such a good life for the most part, you know, um, that you, you, in a way you don't mind making that, that sacrifice. Mm. And then after a while it does start to bear down on you a little bit and you look, you know, you do have to find that balance. Uh, how did you, how did you, Larkin, how did you get into the business? Did you always want to be a DP or, I mean, what was your... Um, no, I mean, I I think like a lot of kids, I just, growing up, got really in the movies. I think my mom worked out in the suburbs, so we would drive out and I'd go to the theater, buy one ticket, and then see eight movies. <laughs> like, you know, great stuff and bad stuff, but it was like, you know, it was like the height of Spielberg, like firing on all pistons. So, I would, again, I'd see all these great, terrible movies like Phantoms or Disturbing Behavior or Speed 2. And then I'd walk over and see Goodwill Hunting and then Saving Private Ryan. Like it was like a surreal, like, you know, or like half-baked. Um, but I got that. And then I just went to, you know, when, at the end of it, it was like, I just go to film school. I like movies. I think directing sounds cool. I think every kid reads like one Steven Spielberg, like autobiography. And you're like, this is what I want to do. This sounds great. <laughs> and you get to school and you're like, how the hell does anyone even direct? Like slash like pull things together. Well, anyways, I, I showed up and I immediately got pulled onto a feature as a grip, like working nights. 
and I just loved the the camaraderie of the crew and just like being in the woods and pulling cable and having backpacks full of sandbags. And I just loved the idea of like working with my hands. Anyways, I just got into the whole grip and electric of it all. And then I realized, oh, the DP seems to have the most fun, um, gets to do the most, is the most creative, can also work on more projects. And ultimately it kind of landed on, I love storytelling and I wanted to tell as many stories as possible. And my friends that were directing we're really just doing one thing a year. And I was like, that's a lot to gamble. Like, what if you spend your whole year and you make something and it's crap? Like I, I was drawn to, and I also thought that cinematography was very similar to directing and that you are, you know, visually telling the story and making a lot of choices. You're not as involved in all the other categories, but I felt like that as a, you know, filmmaker, that's what I was attracted to. And then I got into the technique of it back when, also we were shooting film back then. So like there was legit magic to filmmaking and like the mystery of it and like you know all like the dps and myself were comparing if we could actually do what we wanted like the first thing i shot i got underexposed three stops because i thought that was the secret <laughs> we shoot full film thought i was canned i was like well i should probably not do film this is not my this is not my, <laughs> my forte anyways I, I finished and then i spent you know a decade you know working as a PA, working as an electrician, working in reality TV, you do it. Anything under the sun in Los Angeles, I did, RPA, you name it. And then uh, I just was shooting like little tiny music videos on the side, you know, and it was like that slow roll of like a $2,000 video becomes like a $5,000 video. And then he recommended for like a $10,000 video. And I was just doing these like, just bad, like weird, you know, early aughts music videos and then somehow started doing like 5D fashion videos, which then rolled into like beauty commercials. And then I had a commercial career. Um, yeah, and then I just met a lot of directors through music videos and kind of followed them in the features like Daniels and Hero and yeah. And then I just, yeah, slowly kind of built up. So I, I mainly came up through music videos and then kind of, I'm now mainly just doing narrative for the most part and then filling the gap of commercials. I miss music videos. I haven't done a music video in ages. I hope people still make them, but if it um, <laughs> doesn't feel like it's the same, it was the same when I was shooting them, which was like a very special time, like from like 2006 to like 2016, I thought music videos were having this kind of renaissance in a weird way. I remember, um, yeah, I, I, I started the music videos also in, in London shooting film. Uh, I, I used to remember the stress of like, waiting for the telecine and did it, did it, did I expose it correctly? And did everything come out? Okay. And I'd, I'd be, I'd call the, I'd call the, the post house in first thing. And I'd, I'd say, how, how are they with, you know, did everything come out? Okay. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry. It's all good. I'm, like, I'm going to be hired again. And it's funny. I did a music video one time. You talking about underexposing stuff. Uh, we, it was like for charity and um, it was only rock and roll, but I like it by the stones. And we were traveling to all these different countries uh filming famous musicians whoever wanted to be a part of it and we would build the song as we went uh so we shot the whole thing on super eight and had all these different 16 mil stocks cut down and we were we got to uh and then uh, i'd never shot reversal before and i had some try try x i think it was and uh i remember thinking oh expose it the same way as i expose you know everything else <laughs> And uh, we got to LA and where the, the place, the lab was, it was a specialist place for Super 8 at the time. And uh, they were like, yeah, you're black and white stuff, you know, underexposed, you can barely see anything. I was like, what are you talking about? I exposed it correctly. And then I realized, 
no, I didn't expose it correctly at all. I, I was completely fucked. But luckily, I had covered it. We had three different cameras with different stocks. So I was, I was, I had the coverage. So it was okay. I learned a hard lesson very quickly. How to expose. That's the way to learn. <laughs> what about you, Jamie? How did you get into the business? Um, uh, so I, I went to film school. So I, I, um, I left high school, went to film school. Left high school kind of not, uh, well, in high school kind of unsure of what, what career path to take. Um, and strangely enough, like I, I had, I had been um, on set quite a lot because my, when I was a little kid, my mum put me in like a load of commercials and stuff. Um, As an actor. You know, that's, yeah, exactly, that side of the camera, you know. So I don't, I'd, been, I'd been involved on a film set and, and observed it in such a playful sort of enjoying, enjoying way. I never actually thought that it could be a, a legitimate career path, you know. And then, you know, if, uh, school was never really for me. And um, it got to a point where, um, where all young adults go through uh, that, that phase of, you know, what are you going to be when you grow up type of story, you know. And it, it, it sort of dawned on me then that you could actually have a career in film. Like film is actually a, a path that one could take, you know. And at the same time, there was the advent of a, um, a, a pretty good film school in South Africa. So I, I, I got involved with this film school and did like a four-year four course at this film school. And, you know, that was really the first time that, that, um, that education really made sense to me because for the first time in my whole life, I really um, engaged with what I was learning and, and understood understood it you know I, I growing up you know being dyslexic and stuff um, you know words on the page were always like a bit of a thing for me so you know imagery observation and um, being involved in 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 in, in looking um, was 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 something that really made sense and and now being in film school uh, you know you you quantify um the, the, the value that you quantify is, is how you see the world and how you represent the world with how you see it you know so, so that, that's how it began. I went to film school for four years and um, at our film school, we had this structure where um, uh, every, every year would, would assist the, the two years above them, you know. So if you're in first year, you, you, you assist the third years, second year, you assist the fourth years, you know. So you have this kind of mentoring structure and um, a chap that I had, um, uh, I had worked with on, on set a few times, when he left film school, he um, he was production manager on some small sort of crazy horror film, whatever. And he, you know, he said to me, it was kind of the year I left film school. He said, "Listen, would you be interested in doing second camera on a film on a on a movie?" I said, "Of course, yeah, I'd love to." So um, straight after film school, the first year out of film school, uh, I got into this horror film and I did second camera. And it was actually it was really like the I think my one of my top experiences on set was operating second camera like I really wish that I had uh, done second second camera longer and, and more in my career because it was so much fun you know you have you have none of the stress of a DOP you have none of the worries of a DOP but you, you're in this in such a great seat to learn and you have you're in such a great seat to engage with people and and and, and have such cool um, interpersonal relationships anyway on that film um the director took a shining to me and, and said to me um, uh, afterwards, he said, look, I've got another film coming. Would you like to DOP uh, um, my next movie? And I was like a year and a half out of film school. And I was like, fuck yeah, 
I'm absolutely with the Earth. I have no <laughs> idea what I'm doing, but I'm absolutely with the next film. And I think that I think that's an interesting point about being a DOP is, is that so often it's not about what you know, it's about what you represent that you know and and, and what you study before you have to go into war, you know. And it's like, do you know this camera? Yes, I do, but you don't, but you make sure you flip and do before you start shooting. Do you know this, um, you know, the style of filmmaking? Do you understand German new wave? No, but now I do. Do you know what I mean? So, so that's what it was about. It was like, there's no ways I'm going to let this opportunity slip through my fingers. I'm going to make sure I show up and represent somebody who, who's been doing it for like 10 years, but I didn't have a clue, you know? Um, so that, that, that's how it started. So I, I did that film as a DOP. So I, 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 I straight after film school, I did one film as an operator. And then I just got on this sort of um, role of, of, of DOPing. And, you know, I, absolutely so, so stoked for that journey and, and so happy that I, I, I cut my laurels on, on narrative because narrative storytelling is, is what my base education was, you know. Um, I had to learn commercial. I had to learn aesthetic storytelling. I had to develop a commercial career later on. But, but my, my base education was in narrative storytelling, how to tell a story with your camera and your lighting, you know. Um, yeah, and then here we are today, sitting with you three, you two champions. <laughs> That's it. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I love the, I love the different journeys that, that, we all, that we all go through to get to where we are. Would you say... Well, actually, there's a couple of things. I mean, I've got a whole list of questions, by the way, for both of you about, about the films that you guys shot that uh, well, I'll get to. Um, but um, I, get, I guess, you know, the journey is always different, you know, for everyone. And, you know, we stumble and we're in, like you said, you know, Jamie, you know, you, you, have to, you have to show up and you have, to, you have to be prepared and you have to be ready for, for every opportunity that comes your way. But what would you say, I mean, I think, now would you say like you're at the peak of your careers thus far, both of you, um, to date, and uh, and what you know what what's next on your agenda, you know, on your on your checklist, you know, in a, in an ideal world. Larkin, let's go with you. Um, Pressure's on you. I think it, I I remember actually talking actually camera Mars. I forget this of you, Jamie, but it was talking about the next and the idea of like your career is kind of progressively, it's ambitious, right? You're kind of always trying to do something different or bigger or better. Um, but I think once you make two movies that you love, that you believe in, that are yours, it, you're, you're that, that whole like idea of like bigger or better, it just, it's, it kind of falls apart because you're just like, well, like I forget, I, I forget growing up what it was. It was like, oh, it's like the goal to do Star Wars is the goal to do like a big superhero movies. It's a do Dark Knight. Um, which now like I mean, it was just like it's like because you grew up watching you know loving these amazing cinematographers and the idea of like what a career actually supposed to be and I feel like now I'm at a place where I'm not like the I'm not looking for something more ambitious or bigger I'm just looking for something unique and interesting you know hopefully you know there's a budget and I can be paid well and I can pay my crew well and it's comfortable to shoot or not or I'm looking for something scrappy like um like the whole like drive to like, you know, again, in your career, you start building up projects, trying to do bigger and better things. To me, I think that, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not driven to do $200 million movies or anything crazy like that. And so now I'm at a place where I'm hopefully just waiting for projects that are unique or that I can actually bring something to, as opposed to just be 
a guy that did something weird that wants to make a boring story kind of weird, which usually I get calls for half the time or you know like you know because of the daniels it's like hey you do, you do magical realism you can you can do this movie or you can you know you can make this boring script visually interesting uh, i'm just kind of waiting for something that i'm haven't thought about i'm kind of like hoping to be surprised or find something that i never thought i would shoot and that's the dream of what i'm thinking of now the other thing is i just want to collaborate with my friends again like i want to work with the Daniels again with here I'm, I'm less intrigued about trying to like track down like the best possible directors in the industry as more as I'd rather find friends and make our own path and, and you know create something new um, as opposed to try to I don't know it's just kind of funny it's a fun place to be I like floating knowing that I, I'm just waiting for something unique and not necessarily something that's better if that makes totally. sense perfect sense perfect sense Jamie yeah, I think I think like um, you know, uh, you know, someone said to me the other day, uh, actually, camera. I said, you know, they said, what, what's what's the best movie you've ever made? And I said, my my um, sort of intuitive response was, I haven't made it yet. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, because I, I I think like you you know you know what's inside of you as a DOP, um, and you'll know when you've made that that one piece that's like, okay, this here right now is, 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 is me right now. You know, this is like, this is my masterpiece or this is my, um, you know, my, my, my song kind of thing, you know? Um, so certainly I've done stuff that I'm, I'm, I'm super proud of and absolutely and, and represents my, um, my, my path, but, you know, um, that one piece, you know, um, hasn't, hasn't hasn't come up yet and you know when, when I look at like um potential projects and and things coming coming my way um it's funny you know like when when you're when you're sort of uh, a bit younger and you, you're on the hustle phase you you look at like types of films as like milestones you know and you know as you said now which made me kind of smile was like you know the Star Wars or like the James Bond or like you know the the, the Nolan-esque film and you know, um, and it's funny because what, what I've realized is is looking at like cinema now, it's it's you know it's so trend based. You know, stuff that appealed to me like five years ago, when I when I when I look at it in in today's context of like um, acquisition, it, it doesn't it doesn't quite like sit right. You know, so what what I think for me the best thing to do now is just to be super super honest about. Um, what resonates with me at this point in time, you know, and not try and not try and answer like some sort of uh, goal ticking um, <laughs> placard that maybe I've entered throughout the time, you know, because I mean, you know, when, when, um, you know, um, what's his name did the latest bond? Um, help me out here. Linus Sagan. Linus, yeah, yeah, who, who I, I think he's an amazing filmmaker. And I love, I love his his short form, his long form. You know, I think he's really, really great. And when when he did the latest Bond, I was like, you know, that's that's a that's a great milestone project is to do a Bond, you know, and 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 kind of maybe modernize the Bond look and and, and give it your spin and and whatever. And and um, you know, when I, when I, when I sit in a in a position now, and I think to myself, well, who knows what the next bond is going to be or or or, or what the next um, exhibition piece is going to be and i think that the truth is is that actually the kind of stuff that i that i want to be involved with 
is the kind of stuff that makes me feel deeply uh, upon reading, makes me react deeply upon conceptualizing, makes me and my team react deeply upon acquisition and hopefully become something that, that affects audiences and, and, and hopefully has um, a longevity in, in, the, in the sense of cinema, you know? Um, I, I'd, love, I'd love so much for um, my choices, my cinematic choices to, to have a longevity to them, you know? And, and you know, it, it, and Larkin, I, I, watching your stuff, I know this is something that's so deep in the way that you shoot as well, is that your, your choices, um, are not aesthetic, they're not um, veneer, um, they're rooted in, in the depths of, 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 of a performance arc and an event arc to the extent that, that that little set pieces that you make in a film can actually have a longevity and a lifespan that affects students and audiences and whatever for a long time, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, it's for, the other thing that's, I mean, I had a different, I came up differently than you, Jamie. You had it, it seemed you were yeah, phenomenal to just jump into a movie right off out of school. One of the, the things that when you were coming up was there was this fear of trying to stay, stay with your director. Like you would do something great, like you do an indie, then boom, your director would do like a $30 million movie. And you're like, I have to like, I have to like constantly prove or prove that I can shoot scale or like try to do, I did, I remember there were several projects I did solely because I was like, I needed to prove I could actually handle a budget or do an action sequence or shoot visual effects or whatever. Not necessarily because I wanted to do that, but because I wanted, I didn't want my directors to surpass me. And they were like, sorry, we can't hire you. Um, and it's, but it was weird getting out of that mindset of like, you know, kind of bulletproofing your career with these like choices you make about being able to be like, I can do this, I can do that. Same thing will happen in commercials, even if television, I had to shoot a fucking pilot to prove I could shoot television, which is insane. I had shot like yeah. many films that were way harder than a pilot. And they're like, you need to shoot literally a pilot. And I was like, you're kidding. Um, and it's fun to, as you put it, Jamie, is to throw that away and really just focus on, you know, if you're gonna, are you gonna, how are you going to make your mark in cinema? You know, how are you gonna, what pro, how like, you should do projects that, matter ultimately and longevity yeah. is, you know, like there's a saying it's like people make movies for now or you make movies for 10 years from now you know and mm. that is always the goal is the movie that i want people to watch that movie especially in the holidays now when we're watching all these movies for like the hundredth time i'm kind of like i want i want one of our films to be that film that people watch once a year i don't know what that film is that i'm gonna make but i want that i want there's something so warming about making like some like a a emotion or an experience that people want to revisit and get different things from multiple times. Like having kids now, the movies that I thought were kind of whatever, like some of them have made me cry now just because I'm just like a big, like, you know, wimpy dad, it's like just destroyed by anything that is about father and son relationships and things like that. Like, yeah, like in Living was great. Living, you know, you know, the funeral scene, you know, and he's talking to her about like the fact that his dad didn't tell him he was dying. I was just like, oh, fuck off. Um, <laughs> you know. Um, it was these, it's those moments that like, you know, you kind of, you view them differently. I remember again, this year I watched several films, like being Benjamin Button, I thought was just a beautiful movie. And this year I was like, this is the saddest film of all time. It's about a father abandoning his family to make their life better. And it killed me. Mm -hmm. um, but again, films that can stand the test of time, which I think living is a great 
example of that, I think that's really, you know, applicable to then and now. Um, and it really stood out, by the way. Thank you. One of my favorite parts about living is I think the two strongest scenes don't have Bill in them. And it's a very unique film and that both scenes are talking about Bill's character and there's nostalgia for someone you just watched act. And that's mm. really unique to see a movie where people talk about a memory of someone who you've been, literally been watching like five minutes before and it kills you. It's great. Mm. It's very unique. I haven't really seen films do that successfully where the memory of someone is the best part of it or that's what breaks the audience. Um, it's yeah, it was very special. I'm, I wasn't actually expecting the film to can, kind of continue past that event. Um, anyways, I was just, yeah, very, it was very, it was very cool to see. It was unexpected and kind of felt like, a, again, something I hadn't seen before. Uh, what I was going to say was, um, you know, when, uh, when shooting the movie, uh, working with Oliver, um, our films have always been the, very, the experience is very kind of method, you know, like method shooting. So the um, emotional context of, of being on set uh, is an indirect comparison to the emotional context of the scenes and of the film in general. Um, so ostensibly you actually, as a crew member, as an HD, you live, you live the emotional arc of the story whilst you're shooting the film, you know? And, um, you know, what was intense, really intense for me was um, just observing Bill through the eyepiece and, 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 and watching his progression throughout the film. I really, really st started to feel this intense um, idea of loss, you know, loss of, of um, a loved one, loss of, a, uh, of something that matters to you. Um, and, and there were a couple of scenes and, and my favorite scenes are, are potentially different to other people's. But, you know, when I when I filmed the um, the scene of him singing in the bar. Um, uh, so I'm on comms with my focus puller, you know, and um, he's a very close friend of mine. And, and you know, um, we've done a lot of films together and, and emotionally we're very close as well. You know, so my like tough times, uh, he's always kind of been there for me. And, um, you know, we, we, we're busy shooting the scene of Bill in the bar um, and um, we kind of played it as a series of masters. So we, we didn't really interrupt the, the play of, um, of performance that much, you know. And, um, you know, we did the first and second and third master. And, and I, I like looked over at Damien, my focus puller, and other comms and I looked at him and he looked at me and, and we we're just like, oh, this is um, this is deep, you know. Um, and I, I choked up on when I shot when I shot that scene. My scene, I choked up, and the, the people in the the extras in the audience were choked up too, because I think you know Bill Bill Nye is in his seventies, and and he represents um, this person in our lives. You know, uh, for you, Matt, you know, like you know, the father figure, the grandfather figure. You know, um, for the people in the audience, it was kind of that this and also coming out of this realm of like all of this loss due to COVID and stuff like that and I think people whilst shooting this scene it just really hit hit them and hit us you know and I guess that's what you look for is that honesty and that realism you know and I think Larkin you know you know with your film I guess I, I would call it like the third act of your film when 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 stuff really starts to land and and the message really starts to 
um, hit and come across and they kind of slow down and they start to actually teach you and it's less about um, sort of a barrage of information more about like okay this is the this is the point of it that was that was kind of my moment in um, everything everywhere all at once as well was that was like okay you've experienced all of this now this is what we what we're teaching you and I guess ultimately guys we can all agree that that's that's what good film is about is that lesson you know I want to kind of like just do a little shift because I want to talk technical stuff for, for a bit um uh, kind of like any up-and-coming dps to kind of glean some experience from you guys from both both of your films um jamie i want to start with you for a second i want to talk about the framing something that i really noticed was was how you framed people and there was a lot of headroom throughout the film especially like bill's character uh there was a lot of headroom he was like low in the frame for a lot of the film like it was almost as if, as if life was kind of crushing down on him. And then towards the end, as he was empowered, like he, he kind of came to close to the top of the frame. Um, so I'm interested to, to kind of hear your thoughts and just have you talk about, about that framing journey and aspect ratio there. Yeah, uh, so, so, so you, know, uh, you know, in both of you, you can, I'm sure can attest to this is when you're in the pre-production phase of a film, that is when you are understanding the the, the visual bible of, of of your visual approach, you know, and you you you're 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 intellectualizing, you're pre-intellectualizing choices that are that you think are best for feeling and moment and progression and arcs and all of that sort of thing. And what what was fundamentally important to me about that movie was to set up this idea of 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 post-war austerity in, in 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 the uk and this idea of of um of um you know uh, a society that that is less about the individual and and more about the the greater organism which is the country and 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 um you know the, the you know a, a post-war britain that needs to be uplifted and whatnot um you know um there was this, uh, you know, one of the things was uh, about sort of um, a social hierarchy and, and, and this idea that, you know, each, each sort of class level um, lives in a box and, and works in a box and cannot progress and beyond. Um, so at a base level, it felt like a narrower aspect ratio was the kind of thing that would, would create a jail and create a box, create a structure and an austere structure for a character. Um, and, and beyond that, just this idea of, 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 of chopping off any sort of superfluous information on the side of the frame um, and, and using a narrower aspect ratio that really um, focused, uh, focused us on the character, it, it felt right to me. Um, also, using a, a narrow aspect ratio and a square of framing really allows you and, and this touches upon one of your points that you made now that is um having a having a higher vertical aspect ratio really really allows you the psychology of placing your character within that frame to to create the sense of claustrophobia the sense of drowning the sense of of being encumbered by life being encumbered by your social position um you know these are all things that as a cinematographer i feel you should be conscious of, but also handle delicately, because there's there's a, there's a lot of instances that I've seen lately where 
these this trickery of the lens is 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 handled in a very heavy-handed way, which I think can work in the in a in a in a maybe a shorter form thing, but it, over the stretch of a long form narrative, you've got to use it in, in a very cautious way because if you don't, I, I, th I think it loses the the you know the impact of it, you know, and and and, and the preciousness of it. Um, so yes, you know the the the, the narrower framing and the the box frame became such an integral part of the um, you know the the way that we also handled group compositions and um, which was also a partial throwback to you know um, the early fifties, forties, fifties, and and early sixties um, you know um, uh, movies, you know uh, British, Chinese, uh, Japanese, and American films, you know which. Which had incredible compositions, um, and then another thing that really affected um, Oliver and I was, um, you know, uh, during our, our prep phase, um, our reference palette was um, heavily uh, based in photography, and um, you know, the photography of the time that re that really affected me was of the likes of um, sort of Saul Leiter and um, you know um, Brisson and Nachtwey and and Meyer and and, and such uh, brilliant artists. Um, but inherently, um, you know, that the large format print is 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 in that sort of, I mean, generally one by one, but it's in that world of like, you know, um, four by three and, it, it, you know, in a square sort of format. So I, I really started to feel such value in compositions that were based in the square format. And, 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 and you know, I think in, in, in narratives that are so supremely character driven, Having a square format that's less about an event narrative um, is such a potent way of, of just focusing the audience on the arc of a character. So uh, all of that hand in hand, I think, led to led to our decision of, of, of landing in, in, in that one to one four eight sort of space. You know. Yeah, great. It's great to hear that to hear that thought process. I think it's very useful. That'll be very useful for anyone watching just to hear. I mean, about how you, how, as part of your prep process, you know, you, kind of how you make those decisions which end up on screen. Larkin, I mean, with, with everything everywhere all at once, I mean, um, your your aspect ratio is constantly changing. Um, the, the lighting style, you know, is, is changing, obviously between different universes. We're not gonna have enough time to talk about, to ask, go through all the questions I've got for both of you, but, um, so I'll try to be. Uh, I've also got a question. <laughs> no, I think question. <laughs> oh, perfect. This is great. It's great. I don't want to get in the way of, of your questions. But um, uh, I guess what well, one of the things that actually I'm talking about aspect ratios, because that's kind of what we're on at the moment. Um, there's a there's a moment in the film where Evelyn and Wayman uh, are talking. Um, I think it might be after the cream cheese scene, and. Um, uh, and the camera, the, the camera kind of like moves around. I don't know if it's a steady cam, I think it's a steady cam shot. And before, before, this is after she's connected with her Kung Fu self in the other universe. And you start seeing these camera flashes in that scene. And as you come around, you cut on the movement like a match cut um, to, to the, uh, Evelyn in, in her Kung Fu life, in this you know, big theater, uh, obviously a press event for the movie that they're gonna be watching. And um, and then slowly the aspect ratio opens up a little bit. So um, who you know? Do you know that? Do you know that going in 
that those aspect ratios are going to, when they're going to change, or do you shoot? Because obviously you've shot someone anamorphic, you've shot someone spherical, I'm assuming. And so how have you planned for that? Or have the Daniels just done that in post, you know, to help match a shot, you know? So, uh, yeah. A lot of the choices, the creative choices for that movie are designed to um, supplement or enhance the mood of the universes, but also to help the audience understand that something is different or changed. So like all of our, you know, it's funny, you did you did 4.3 for a, a film set in the past and that's what we did. All of our memories are 4.3 um, for anything that's happened previously that happened before that day. So the audience knows that those are always flashbacks. Um, the we created the action verse initially in the film when the fanny pack fight sequence happens and that's when we switched to anamorphic um to separate it from what we call the the taxes verse which is where she nothing happens she just goes home and does her taxes and that's where they end up having the party um but we really wanted like we had planned there's a whole shot that pulls back from wayman's face into a wide and that's when like the do 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 you know the the bars crop down which has been done before and I've always loved it. Um, the coolest version ever is going to be hard to recreate, which I think was done for Hunger Games. And it was an IMAX and it was the reverse. It started anamorphic and as she's going up, I forget, she's like, there's like an elevator to like whatever the island she's on. And it goes up and it goes from anamorphic to IMAX 4.3, which is insane. Like, can you, I can't even like to do that. I was like, that is like, that's off. That's, that's mind blowing to pull that off on IMAX scale. We didn't do that. We just... We went, we went from, I believe, 185 and compressed it down to 235 because the action verse is more diehard based. But the the plethora of, like, I mean, we also got silly. I forget. Hot dog hands is 2-1. It was, you know, it was the Netflix aspect ratio. Um, a lot of it, too, was that in order to kind of help separate the universes a little bit. And again, it's subtle. Like only, I think Racket Cooney's 235 as well. We, there's only so many things you can do. And we, just, we didn't want to make, like, random aspect ratios for each universe we wanted to kind of commit based on references um, but one of the main reasons daniels wanted to do it is there's like a montage and then towards the end of just michelle's face mm. and they had seen a reference before of like someone tracking a face through different formats and they loved how beautiful that was that the chaos of format changing all around her is there but her head stays constant mm. Um, that was a big part of kind of choosing different formats. But ultimately, it was just trying to guide the audience to help them like subtly know like, oh, this must be this universe and things like that. And that was a lot of the decision making on that film from colors to the way we executed it was to create separation between the universes. And that's why we created the palettes. It was, it was fun as a reference, but also it was like, we really need the audience to very quickly know that they are in Rakakuni land or they're in like the Wong Kar Wai universe and things like that. You know, I can imagine approaching this film, uh, the idea of or the wanting of separating the worlds would have been like a big discussion between you and your director, you know, uh, the how to and, and how how deep you would go in that sort of idea of separation. And in that separating of worlds, you know, I guess comes in that sort of discussion of tone, like how, how do you tonally separate the worlds? Like, what, what is the metaphor? Uh, did you go as deep as like discussing the metaphor behind the different worlds and, and, and how deep you went? And, I, you know, it's funny you, you mentioned now the one car why, because I totally I totally saw the um, in the mood for love reference there. And I was like, yeah, I love that, you know, because that's like the, the idea of sort of this um, this cinema, um, which is sort of like um, a Chinese cinema, you know, which is 
I think all of our minds, well, mine anyway, goes straight to kind of uh, Karwai uh, Doyle world, you know, which was I thought was really great. But um, yeah, I, I guess uh, you know, how, how deep did you go into the the sort of metaphorical representation representation of the separation uh, and that sort of thing? The biggest challenge again was trying to like a lot of the influences were based on the emotions of the scene and the performances, and that that's what drove the majority of the creative choices. So kind of like, I mean, in, you know, in, in living, you guys really use wonderfully, beautifully shot off eyeline frames and profiles and you're never, you know, so that when you actually, and there was a lot of scenes and I remember every time you actually had a hard eyeline, something important was happening, um, which was great. Um, and so like in the Wong Kar Wai universe, that's the only time we do off, we do short side framing, we do off framing, we do headroom. And it's the only time Evelyn's character is disassociated and jealous and cruel and basically not herself. And it's this kind of, and that's what pushes Key's character to make these big statements about how like, you know, you should think about what you did have because it did sound great. You're lucky to have that. Um, and that's the only time we break our framing. The rest of the framing is designed heavily around connecting with Evelyn and what she has to do. So a lot of it is center punched or balanced in general. And a lot of it, a lot of the choices in were less about informing the audience emotionally because the performance is there and just informing them narratively what's happening and why. Um, but then the rest of like, you know, like the Jobo universe, I have, I have a, I have a document I should send you by the way of all the references. Um, the job like the bagel verse is all this kind of like you know black and white sterile pulled lifted printed black shot on Todd AOs and it was this kind of like evil stillness or balance that we were going for something that felt off even though everything looked pristine and it was also our take on you know visually how to represent depression that even something can look perfect and austere um is ultimately just you know falling apart and is cracking um you know and then the normal world you know Evelyn's whole life is kind of a jumble of everything. So like the, the regular world is every color we can jam in there, heavily of production design, occasionally headroom, um, and just kind of packed. We would create frames that were too busy because we wanted the audience to like, also because it's subtitled as well, you know, that even if the frame is insane, they will ultimately read what's, what's being read or they'll hear it. Um, we, we did jump around a lot. And a lot of the times that the Daniels would, would kind of refocus the scene and be like, this scene is about a close-up or this scene is about the wide. And we'd focus all of our attention on getting that. And then the other shots, we would blend into that choice. Um, yeah, and a lot of it too, again, for my job on it was, it's an insane film, obviously. Like there's some crazy sequences, very like sophomore absurdist, stupid slap shit, slapstick stuff in there. And like my job was to try to just, be like it's okay like like i'm gonna use lighting we're gonna be like brash about it and we're gonna try to make the audience believe that this is possible by not making it look like a comedy as much as we can mm. even though the costumes are insane and their actions are insane no matter how i lit it it was still going to be you know you guys having a butt plug fight um mm. <laughs> a lot of our job was trying to add a realism or um mm. again step on it if you will like just basically try to take out the joke um, so that you still appreciate it. Hmm? Uh, how long did you shoot for? We had 36 days of principal. Sure, then, that's quick. Oh, man. Wow. Was, yeah, and the script was, I think the first cut of the movie was almost three hours. And I was just like, holy cow. 
Oh, we had to cut whole universes out of it too. Like there's a whole, there's a, there was a noodle verse at one point um, that was all shot in a boiling pot of water. <laughs> I, love, I love the rock, the rock verse, you know, like the two, yeah. the two rocks. I love that part of the two rocks just sitting there and you're like, that's such a magic mushroom moment, you know? Those were shot on Master Primes. That was our National Geographic ode Ooh. to the film. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that was a stunning, stunning location. I'm, I'm so happy we did that because I, a lot of people love that scene, just like the yeah. one shot. And that actually, that actually gets people actually like have an emotional reaction to that scene as well. Um, yeah. People, I remember people talking about crying over two stupid rocks and being very <laughs> upset. By I also happy. think, I think like in the in the chaos of the movie, which is such a, a sensory um, overload. It's it's a fantastic respite just to like allow shit to sink in a bit, you know. Yeah, and I think the subtitles I think were discovered in post. I don't think they had the dialogue, so I think the editor just put the subtitles in. If my memory's correct, and then the Daniels were like, "Oh, this is better. This is far better than them actually speaking." Like just having subtitles like completely allows the whole theater to be silent. It's amazing the emotion you, you, people actually or one derived from from the subtitles without actually hearing voices. Like you read everything into it. It's exactly what you said, Jamie. The respite of, of from 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 the crazy like action and overload, uh, and and then all of a sudden you're like you're getting emotional from, from subtitles. <laughs> I wanted to ask you guys a little bit about your prep process. Uh, you know, with this movie and. From start to finish, like when you when you read the script, when do you start thinking about the color? You know, color for me is as important as lighting, as important as lensing. You know, it, it has this it's such a strong psychological effect on on your imagery, um, and the colors hand in hand with um, you know your your contrast ratio, your feeling of saturation. All of all, all of it goes hand in hand, and it's all of it is such a strong storytelling tool. Um, so, so whenever I go into a film, it, it really is one of the earliest discussions is about color palette, you know, and it's, it's, it starts, it starts with a, a discussion with the director and then it, you, you engage, um, you know, art department, obviously, because, you know, they, they've been on the film for so long, they've got a very, very strong position on color already, um, uh, design and um, you know Sandy Powell did the, the, the you know the, the wardrobe design for the film um, and, and obviously hair and makeup as well so so straight up front before I have even developed my visual treatment for the movie it's the discussion of color palette because I, I for me getting everybody on board basically as soon as we start I think is one of the best investments that you can do because if everybody's working towards the same goal from a color perspective, you really can't, you can't go wrong. Uh, and if they're not, you are going to go wrong sooner or later down the line. And, you know, with living, um, you know, working with Oliver, uh, Oliver and I always have a very specific prep phase in terms of the feel and the look of the movie. And, and it's, you know, Oliver's um, office during the prep of, of living, um, you know, we had, the walls littered with um, our visual references, you know, which um, arguably were made up of um, a lot of stuff that inspired both him and I throughout our last, you know, 10, 15 years of knowing each other, um, but also represented the evolution of our taste. 
um, you know, stuff that was heavily based in photography, but also from Oliver's perspective, based in, um, you know, referencing some of the iconic films of yesteryear. But for me, the, the intrinsic feeling of color and contrast ratio, I took specifically from uh, photography. And I focused um, largely on uh, sort of the, the early Kodachrome stuff that existed and was born out of like the late 40s, early 50s, you know. Um, specifically looking at the way like uh, pe people like um, Sol Leiter and, and uh, Vivian Meyer sort of de dealt with them, um, you know, your, your red, green and blue color spectrum on Kodachrome. And it became such an appealing thing to me because a lot of the references that I was looking at in, in, in sort of a post-war uh, United Kingdom had a very desaturated environment, but where the color came in was in skin tone and in wardrobe and um, obviously also in, in sort of posters and things like that, that was effectively art department. So, um, you know, I sent you a, my, my, my sort of color, color document that I, that I used in the, uh, you know, that, that color document that I created came off the back of um, a meeting that I did with all parties where, um, you know, we sat down and we just spitballed, you know, this concept of color. And afterwards I, I put together the, the document which everybody was 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 completely aligned to, and that's something that I use to engage with my colorist because um, knowing that I, I really wanted to shoot on the day in such a deep contrasty way, um, where I I would allow the colors to 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 really sing and, and have their place, but I I I never ever wanted to be in a situation where we 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 had a a, a flat soft image. Um, which is specifically tricky when you're shooting, um, you know, on location and, and you know, uh, city locations, you're on the second floor, third floor. It's very, hard, it's very hard to introduce a contrast ratio from your lighting in such a respect. So it was important for me to develop this light beforehand with my colorist so that every, all the parties involved knew where our colors were going, where our, uh, our blacks were going, because, you know, a lot of the male wardrobe was super dark, you know, and that part was back in the 50s, you know, grays, blacks, pinstripe, it was really dark. So it was a responsibility of mine that I needed to pay heed to, to Sandy Powell's wardrobe by exposing, you know, the, the, the dark lower end of the, of the wardrobe spectrum um, bringing the colors alive and being true to the colors because Sandy Powell's colors are so brilliant. The way she hand dyes stuff and she brings colors alive, it's, it's a cinematographer's dream really. But this LUT and this color workflow really needed to enable us to, to, to do something on the day on set that everybody would know, okay, we've got a contrasty image. I'm able to shape with light, but wardrobe still is a, a, a forerunner in this hair and makeup works beautifully. Um, so that was the process with color. It was, was, was developing this beforehand so that on the set we could, um, we could do something that everybody felt comfortable with and felt, felt good seeing. Um, and, and the other thing was for, for me to you know, develop the color profile with my colorist beforehand so that it's the same colorist afterwards so that there's no worries about you know, a colorist being a, a little bit negative about potentially uh, somebody else's LUT or a LUT that you as a DOP have created yourself. It's his LUT, it's followed through from a, from a color document that's intellectualized by a lot of thought and a lot of decision. And now it's run through to, to, to the post phase where 
um, you know, everybody's become used to, to seeing the dailies with this, this lat on. They're used to seeing the crunch of the dailies. They're used to seeing the colors pop the way they should. Um, and everybody's, everybody's eye has been trained to the look of living from day one, which is so important for me as a DOP because, I mean, I, I, bet, you, I bet both of you can attest to this, how often you've relinquished the color workflow and two months down the line, you look at the eventuality of your choices and it's like, how did this go wrong? Where did this go wrong? Who, you know, who's affected this? But by owning your color workflow from the beginning, like I'm sure, Larkin, I'm sure you, you did, and I'd love to hear yours as well, you know, on, on, on your film. But by owning it from the beginning, at least you can control and, and have ownership and authorship of it, you know? Yeah, no, I, think, I think that's like um, something I've definitely changed throughout the years. I, I bring my colorist into the conversation in the contract phase. I kind of, when I approach a movie and they're like, great, we should, it'll work out. I'm like, cool. I work with this colorist. I expect to work with him on the film. Let's talk about, let's talk to your post team, make sure it's going to work. I don't want to jump on a project and then be like, oh, that guy's not going to work. We're going to color at the house doing visual effects. I want to be able to, in advance, be like, it's not for me. If that's how you view color. It's not my type of movie. Color is a huge part of it. It's everything I've been working for is, or striving towards is designed by this lot. Um, so it has to come from the beginning and you have to be aggressive about it. Again, I try to, it's not actually in my contract, but it's something that I introduce at that phase with the producers to be like, let's talk about this now and not down the line or two weeks before we shoot, like, let's figure it out. And then I start building the lot as soon as humanly possible. Like the first thing I do is generally go and shoot tests and then just kick it down to a colorist who then works with a color scientist and we'll reference a stock or a theme or a vibe or a movie and start building it from there. So for everything everywhere, we took Michelle's stand-in and we photographed her in the laundromat and at the IRS building and in red light and then we lit her with hard light to kind of mimic the musical world. Um, and then I created a bunch of references for Alex Bickle, my colorist in New York, who I've been working with for the past five years. Um, and he, we just basically went through, I mean, it's a crazy movie. So I was like, he's like, what do you want it to look like? And I was like, um, Everything. We want it to look like um, the sound of music. We want it to, you know, look like like um, uh, we, we had a, we had a ton of references. And so what we we did is we built a quad of the same shot that we showed the directors of, you know, you'd have the same frame on each corner of the grid, and each one would have a different LUT. And we'd play whole, you know, tests out with it. We would talk about the pros and cons of it and how skin worked. Um, we ultimately decided on like a Fuji stock to base the film around because of what it did with skin and how it played of shadows. At the time I was like, oh, it's just this little bit of cyan, it's gonna be great. And then I watched the movie now and cyan's everywhere. Even <laughs> in the middle of the grade, I was like, Alex, there's too much cyan. And he was like, it's a part of the movie, my friend, you're just gonna have to go with it. <laughs> um, and then we built a bunch of other weirder, funkier LUTs like that a printed up smoky black with purple shadows to kind of mimic beyond the black rainbow or, um, my, my, my favorite reference was a uh, never ending story too. Um, <laughs> it doesn't look that way, just my memory. And the one thing we found out while making the lot is all of our references are memories of the movie that we watched. Cause then I pulled up, I tried to pull stills from In the Mood for Love. It's tungsten, it's clean. It's not colorful. You remember, the reason why people remember it being colorful is because they use color so sparingly, it pops like when she's wearing that dress or when he's under a yellow light, because all the scenes of them at night on the street, it's hard tungsten exposed for tungsten. It's very clean. 
and yeah. so it's it was this like oh that's not actually what we're doing we're referencing like chunking express ultimately or we're referencing fallen angels like his more colorful films where they used a lot of real street lighting um even though they're dressed identically to like in the mood for love like it was still it, that's why we call it the Wong Kar Wai verse as opposed to like in the mood for love universe mm-hmm. um and what we, we ended up doing is we built a bunch of LUTs but we also became enamored with our hero LUT and so a lot of the universes we'd throw up the new LUT and we'd be like no let's let's do it with lighting and framing let's not just throw on a LUT and say that's going to be the big choice let's stick to our previous LUT and I'm going to remove color. And that was our big choice when I worked with everyone was our first color meeting was less about the color we're going to push, but the colors we don't want in these scenes. Cause we knew that the taxes universe where Michelle has the new year's Eve party or like red is going to be all over that sequence. Let's try to keep red out of every other universe. Um, which we failed to because Rakakuni has a very red scene in it. But overall, like you don't really see red in the Wonka Y verse that much. Um, you know, or, or like Rakakuni, like we're pushing cobalt blue, white, and like kind of like an American flag thing, but generally white and blue. So that's like the big, you know, that was our, you know, punch drunk love reference, if you will, the P.T. Anderson verse. Um, that one we didn't quite like nail on the head I wanted to in terms of production. Like we should have had like, you know, big ass backlights for the night exteriors and like a very dramatic like 90s drama, but we didn't have the time or money. So it was like, we're gonna use street lights, we're gonna go for it. But um, a lot of it too, but then the costumes was great because the costumes are so crazy. They got to see these choices and Shirley who had, I don't know how she had so many costumes for these actors, it was kind of surreal. I think she herself owned half of this collection and she just pulled stuff out. Um, mm. We started dialing things in and so like all the characters are more muted colors because they're going to have to make this journey through all these different like, kind of colorful universes and we never wanted their their clothing or their those choices to pop too hard we wanted them to be again dialed back you know obviously jamie's character is wearing vibrant yellow and like grays and mustards and it's like a, that was the big choice and so we're like okay cool the yellow is only for her character generally no other character dresses that way and we're not really going to use lighting style that's going to make anything else feel like that um but yeah no it was like the yeah the colors like you know that's my favorite part of the the prep process actually is like you know shooting tests generally i'll actually like next week we're shooting tests for a new project and i'll actually i'm really adamant about shooting tests with film and digital even if you 100 know you're not going to shoot film it's really informative to shoot the same shot on film and digital so you can start talking about what I think is like, you know, the preferred format, again, film, everything looks great on film. You never, skin is yet to look better than film, but it's really wonderful to, to have a reference and talk about what you like and what you miss and start having those conversations and prep, even if you're not gonna shoot it, it's a great way to, to just, you know, then you, then you have like, you know, the, what we call, you know, as filmmakers, the idyllic version of it, the, the 35 mil version of it and a lot of times it, it looks similar that's the thing and a lot of times it, look, it looks completely different but um i think the testing part is again the most fun part did you guys do a lot of tests for for your look i feel like did you debate like other formats too i know you, you landed on 4.3 but did you test options for for a living um do you know what we because our previous film was muffy and um we also did uh, quite a square aspect ratio for muffy and you know that uh, that 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 came off um, 
directly off the, um, the photography that we had been observing of the time, which was like your sort of 24 hour photo disposable cameras that the soldiers used during the, the, the uh, you know, the war, the war in South Africa, you know, um, and those were processed at that one to one for one to one for four sort of aspect ratio. So it's, it's something that I started to be trained at from a, a reference phase, you know, but then the, the look of the look of um, the look of living, I think, had been something that was so long in the in the coming for, for both Oliver and I. It, it had been it had been a, a, a it had been something that both him and I were so um, so sort of in love with from a reference perspective. The idea of this high contrast sort of print feel um, that um, you know we both knew we both knew what we wanted to do, and you know we obviously we shot um, uh, you know a, a bunch of camera tests and sort of um, um, we, we you know we did a bunch of sort of um, you know art department uh, design makeup tests um, you know in the, the the sort of the weeks running up to the film um, you know which were as you said earlier Larkin was you know the fodder that um, Joseph Bicknell my colorist used to to develop the final um, you know shooting that but it, it, it wasn't, it didn't feel like a voyage of discovery landing on the look. It was more just about, um, it was more just about working out what level of, 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 of depth of black and, and clip of highlight and the separation between the two and how, how we would influence that, the shooting curve to, to exacerbate that and what level of saturation pop we would use in the, the, the RGB channels just to give um, life to those very sparingly used um, uh, primary colors. Um, so, it, you know, it's funny, you know, when I look back at the film, the struggles of that film were so much more logistical than they were creative. Um, you know, it was, it was a film that was made um, literally in the busiest uh, time in UK film history. You know, it was, it was made basically just after lockdown, whatever, you know, and it was when all the streamers and everybody were just absolutely dying for content. And it was like the floodgates opened and there was nothing available, guys. I must tell you, we went into principal photography. My gaffer, Warren Ewan, um, I, I was privy to, to his struggle in finding lighting equipment. He, he ultimately sourced from like 10 different companies. Oh, he sourced gear for ten, from 10 different companies and you know the 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 weekend before when we were pre-lighting the weekend before principal photography he called me into the gear store and he said do you want to come have a laugh and I said yeah please let's go so we walked into the gear store and he showed me the equipment guys we had it felt like a film school gear store we had um, lighting stands with no wheels we had c stands with no lock-offs we had c stands with no arms we had we had such a mishmash of equipment, but 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 more importantly than any of that, what we what we had was just a, a strong a belief and a strong trust from you know all the crew and, and and the guys were just like you know what we'll make it happen no matter what and like uh, when we went into our first week of shooting, looking at the pre light and the, and the pre rig in the room, <laughs> we had lights lights that were like locked off with gaffer tape and. And and like pieces of equipment that you know feels feels like they would they do pretty well on like shitty rigs, you know. Um, 
you know, but it's what you have to do, man. You know? Yeah, it still works. Uh, wow, you guys have so much information. I just want to um just want to just drill down a little bit more specific about the makeup tests and the prep tests, you know, in the process. So you've you've done makeup tests, which essentially for anyone who's who doesn't know about makeup tests, do you want to just tell people why you do makeup tests quickly, both of you? Uh, yeah, go, you know, you go Larkin, go for it. For, I mean, initially the makeup test just to make sure the makeup, like, you know, for like for everything everywhere, we wanted to make sure that the blood and the bruises and the cuts that that looked real, it didn't look stupid. And also to make sure that, you know, a lot of times, sometimes makeup can contrast with LUTs or there's a lot of times there's a big debate on how red is someone's face, but you're just making sure that the, you're testing to make sure that what, what the makeup team is doing is ultimately hopefully forgettable or you don't, you don't, it doesn't pop out. It doesn't stand out. You're testing for flaws. For me, I'm also testing for like how an actress looks and, or an actor looks and like what, if I can, I'll get three different keys that I can pop on and off like top light, side light, up light, just to make sure that there's not some crazy angle where I'm like, Oh, never do that. Whatever we do, don't do that. Or we can go, Oh, if it's, you know, top lit from the right, it's going to, you know, the way that her eyes are, her eye sockets are, it's going to be perfect. Because a lot of those things you end up learning as you're shooting. Um, I feel like everyone, you figure out an actor's eye socket about two weeks after you started shooting and you're like, okay, this person needs light on the ground and this person never should have a light on the ground, that type of thing, because either their eyes are protruding or they're really sunken back. But in general, though, for everyone else, it's just seeing what, you know, to me, what the makeup team and the costume team has been working on. That's almost like their show and tell basically. Um, sometimes it's informative and sometimes it's really just get to know the actors and, and say hi before you end up shoving a camera in their face for the next month. Cool. Yeah, for me, for me, it's like, um, I, I kind of, I kind of use it half as like a chemistry test to, to kind of get everybody uh, in the mix, you know? So everybody's meeting each other. Everybody's getting to know each other. Everybody's, doing what they are going to do on the shoot day uh, in an environment that's more forgiving than actual day one photography. Um, but, but technically the, uh, you know, along the same lines as Larkin, what I'm looking for is um, the color profile that we're going to use, how that affects the primaries, which will always affect makeup, you know, so lipsticks, eyeliner, the, the, the depth of, of, of the tonal ratio of, of makeup. The way that the way that we've chosen to soften our lens, um, how that affects, um, you know, um, how that affects makeup, and and you know, because the way that um, you know, um, two point eight K digital reads makeup, the way that four K digital reads makeup, the way that six K digital reads makeup, and the way that thirty five mm film reads makeup, is absolutely the most varied thing you could ever imagine. So, so it's so useful for your, your makeup artist who might have just come off a, you know, um, a Marvel 35 mil shoot. It's so, it's so useful for them to understand what their scope is in terms of, 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 of developing a tonal range for makeup. Because, you know, we shot 3.4K open gate. It's so much less forgiving than 35 mil film in terms in terms of your tonal fall off in, in terms of makeup you know how you blend the wig to the face how you blend the eyes to the cheek so 
it's really useful for them to see and understand what their scope is and understand how far they need to go to, to create that blend. So that's important. It's important to understand where your colors are going. You know, um, we, 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 we went through a handful of reds uh, on the makeup test because we realized that the initial reds, which were good to the eye, actually popped far too much um, with the LUT. So, um, so Nadia um, pulled, pulled the red back. Um, if my memory serves me, she pulled the red back quite a bit for the lips um, and, and found, it, found something that, was, um, that landed in a spot that was, that was great for everybody. Um, and another great thing for me that's, that's so wonderful about these chemistry tests is that it's such a good place for me to develop a repertoire with the key cast. You know, um, uh, you know, generally the director kind of leaves you alone on these chemistry tests and I'm able to just develop a, a shorthand with, with the cast and they're not under pressure. They don't have to perform. So they're in a super cool vibe. I'm in a good vibe. I put on some good music and we try a bunch of different things. I show them what we're doing so they can, they, they, they can see, you know, what my plan is with the way I use light and the way I'm going I'm to light the different faces. Like Larkin said, um, you know, for us to see what different lenses work on different faces is, is, is great. You know, I worked with them, a chap recently. I won't, I won't mention names, but he, he's, he's a fantastic actor. But anything sort of wider than the 25 really didn't work with him. And that was something that I learned, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the test, in the chemistry test, you know, where we, where we tried different lenses. And, you know, like Larkin said, like to learn this, not during printed photography is such an absolute blessing, you know. Jamie, just to talk something about lighting, not color, actually, something just popped in my mind, more about the, the quality of light. Was, I noticed in the, in the movie, there was a lot of hard light that you used. And, you know, at least at this day and age, you don't see that so much anymore. I'd love to kind of hear what, what drove that decision. Um, I, I, you know, I think, I think the, the whole relationship with hard light for me was probably my strongest um, ode to um, that era of cinema, you know, where, where I, I think, I think like, you know, uh, sort of bare Fresnel sources were such a, a uh, such a part of, of of sort of 40s and 50s and before that but 40s and 50s cinema it, it was such a great way of keying um key performances out of the background and and, and creating um sort of a um a middle arena of performance if you will um so it was something that i i wanted to use as a tool as, as sort of an, an ode to that era but Again, uh, an, another um, another point to 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 the hard lighting thing was it for location for location based shooting. It was such a useful um, tool in developing a, a functional contrast ratio um, um, on location. You know, when when you don't have a particular control of light, you know, to bring in um, again a, 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 a strong Fresnel source, a tungsten based source, which was Arguably, you know, the, the, the birth of film lighting was with the, with, the, with the heavy Fresnel sources, you know. To use that as a, as a, as a, as a way of, of, of it's, it's almost like your first strong brush stroke on a page. 
having having one strong source and from that you can really build the the rest of your your exposure profile from that and and I, I felt it was it was so useful to 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 have everything anchored in one strong brushstroke to start off with and then from that you develop your your um your overall tonal fall off from there and in that you created um you know your your tableau um so 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 being being able to being able to to use that in terms of trying to replicate some of your reference lighting you know some of the stuff that's um that i learned on was was based in natural lighting you know um i think photographers will always gravitate to something that has a good contrast ratio and 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 that's when we look at photography as 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 reference material we'll always see something that's always shot in, in in the best part of a natural um verite environment you know um and that's what that's what i try to reproduce with this was was, was you know what would natural light do in the best possible circumstance um and 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 and, and we use that you know and um i mean there are moments when i look at the film and i think you know you know perhaps um you know the hard lighting could have been pulled back in certain moments but Hey, listen. I'll tell you what. Every every film you make, it's a it's a lesson. You know, you, it's absolute school fees on every film, and um, and I think ultimately I'm 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 stoked with where it landed. You know, that's awesome. Um, I just noticed the time, and I realised we've been chatting for a long time. Um, <clears throat> we should probably wrap it up in a minute. Is, it, is there any other questions you guys have for each other? I mean, there's a whole load of questions I didn't get to, so. Maybe I should have let, you guys back. But <laughs> let me ask Larkin. Um, I'll ask him. I've got like a load here for you, but I'll just I'll I'll just do one or whatever. Um, so Larkin, your your film, which I think is it's admirable how many um, discipline transitions you guys used in your movie. Um, I mean, it 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 gave me cold sweats thinking about how. I would even <laughs> I would even be able to plan such a because obviously transitions are something you have to think about and plan. And yeah, you can do them on the day and think, but like you really have to go into war knowing what your transition palette is. Um, how did you how did you broach with your director the whole language of transition in this film, which is such a big part of it? Um, I mean, there a lot of it is they love transitions and a lot of they've been sitting up the script for five years and so they've been playing up these really silly ideas or very dumb ideas and i would you know a lot of times we'd workshop and i would be like well that's stupid but what if here's a stupider take on on this transition um and they would discover some of them in post like i remember when they showed me the transition to the rock universe because initially in the laundromat michelle it crawled into a rock form and then they cut and then they were like, they're like, we're going to dissolve her into a rock and then we're going to dissolve into the universe. Um, a lot of it was, was us playing around um, on the location and talking about advance. And the, one of the, it was about 45 minutes outside of LA. And so I opted to just drive to the director's house every day and, and Dan Kwan and, and I would drive with them and the producer to set back and forth. So every day I would start with 45 minutes of them in the car. And every night we would end going back. And that was like like on, the, like on a location job in a way and that you got to actually sit 
and talk about the, you know, the upcoming stuff and play around. And that I think is really essential. Um, like it's like, you get 45 minutes of extra prep in the morning and you actually get 45 minutes at the end of day just to see what worked, what didn't work. Um, but ultimately the transitions came from them. And I, we, I figured out, I, I asked about like, what's the hardest, you know, I, in prep, it's very much like eats your veggies first, like, you know, figure out what scares you. Like, how are we doing Michelle shooting through a room and going into a closet? Like, are we doing that practically? Like, how are we going to do step printing? Oh, we're going to test that out. You know, how are we going to, you know, how are we going to do the wire work? How are we going to have Jamie fly through the air matrix style? Like we started like kind of attacking all of the things that I didn't know or had an idea, but still didn't know how we were going to do it. Um, and the transitions were a part of it. But also those guys had it so ingrained in them. I remember they were adding transitions while we were shooting. And I was like, there's a laundromat sequence where Michelle's walking around and Joe was talking to her from the other world. And then the Daniels were like, oh, let's just actually put Joy's character in the background of all these shots and we'll just introduce her and come off of her. And I was like, that's not in the script. And they're like, yeah, we know, but I th think it'll work. And then that became like the better part of the sequence than the actual like flashing back to Jovu, which they got to cut away from. Um, yeah, ultimately they, it's really them. And then my job is just figuring out technically like what's the most fun way to do this or what's the most adventurous. Um, I have a question too for you, Jamie. Uh, the aesthetic outside of how you frame the actors is also to me a big, a really compelling part of um, living. Um, and it creates a mood in a very unique way, like the camera mounted on the train, these high angles. Was that something that was directly plotted or was that something that came out of the fact that you were doing a timepiece and that a lot of the places you were photographing weren't you know, had like modern shit or cars or like there were too many buildings in the background. I had to paint it out. Did a lot of, did the restrictions kind of push your creativity to a different place? Cause that's, I'm not sure if that happened, but I love how the, you know, like your exteriors are really elegant and suggest more than the, than you can see. And is that something that came from restrictions or something you always wanted to do? Um, do you know what? I, I, th I think, it, I think in this, in this respect, it, it, it Luckily, it was something that we we, we wanted, you know, um, in terms of um, sort of set extension and cleanup and stuff that was always on the table from production. You know, they, they had a budget for, uh, you know, developing a world bigger than what the lens could see. Um, um, you know, they always knew that, um, you know, London, because we were shooting central London, uh, London for London, we always knew that it would it would be restrictive. Um, so. So. Um, you know, we knew that if we wanted to have something that was a bit wider and a bit more sort of formulaic, you know, we, we, we had the option of a post cleanup. But I think more than anything else was, was rooted in, 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 in the discussions of why we would have a camera there. Why, you know, what, you know what, is, what, is the, what is the feeling of this moment um, and, and how do we represent that feeling and why why do we put a why do we put a camera there? why do we have a camera moving in such a way why in this moment is a is a is a profile so much stronger and um, than something from the front or something from over the shoulder and um, and and I, I guess this is maybe a, a nice opportunity just to just to make mention about about the value of relationships with directors who are happy to talk about why 
uh, rather than how. Um, because how is something that, that, that will always come to us. But the why is, is, is something that I think is so important to really get it deep into beforehand because the why is not something that you can ever actually intellectualize when you're shooting. You've just got no headspace for why when you're shooting. When you're shooting, it's like, we got to fucking do this, you know? But beforehand, that, that's when the, the headspace for why exists, you know? And, you know, for instance, the idea of the train, and, and it's a recurring theme with Oliver and I, but the train, the train for, for us was this concept of, of, um, of a conduit that, that um, teleports um, the human beings from, from, from the, um, the working realm to the living realm. So rather than just treating that as, as a journey, uh, it was personifying the train and, and the, the actual experience of, of, of being teleported because, you know, back, back then it was, uh, you were separated, you know, uh, your, your social class sort of separated you and you you in the different compartments and, you know, uh, you know, you necessarily um, allowed to engage with people from a different class or whatever. But it was this idea of, of, of being taken through the landscape and, and dropped off in your, in your um in you know in, in your home in your home base and you know personifying that journey and, and allowing it to actually be a character rather than just something that happens you know um also you know the the the, the you know the use of high angles in, in, in some of the um in, in environmental scenes you know that uh, some of that came some of that was born out of um some incredible reference material that we saw you know some some beautiful magnet photography from from the era um, you know, which inspired us because it had a feeling and it had a feeling because the photographer had a point of view. And, and that's, what I, that's what I love about Stoll's photography as reference material is that a photographer has one frame to tell a story and a good photographer, the intellectualizing of the positioning of that frame, you're taking so much into account. It, it, there's so much story that has to exist in that one, that one moment. Um, so. I find it's, it's such a rich pool of reference material because if you can tell so much emo, emotional context in, in, in one position of a frame, imagine you put a little bit of movement into that and then you start to engage with the character at the bottom of that. I mean, you're on a winning ticket there, you know? So, um, so th well, first of all, thank you for saying, saying that about, about the, the environmental stuff. You know, it wasn't easy, um, you know, to find and also, you know, so, you know, shooting in, for you shooting in LA, for me shooting in London, you can't get away with too much in terms of where you put your camera and, uh, and the allowances of, of, of being, um, uh, putting the camera in places. So um, yeah, ultimately we got what we got. Yeah. I think, I think the why is really important because I've had some directors be like, oh, can, let's make, can you make the frame more arty? Like, let's make it, let's find an arty shot and I'll just recoil. Um, there's a commercial directors um, and it's I'm like the whole purpose the whole like you know the justification of what makes something already is someone had a question and the answer was that frame exactly That's why it's that way and it's because someone said why you know if I try to just make something are there you just feel like a fraud it's like and anyways that was something that I'm constantly thinking about is like there's no to me there's no such thing as an already frame there's a, there's basically a question being answered with that frame and you're going what was that question and that's why the frame is compelling and that's what's so fun about this movie is 
it's for forcing the audience to think with all these all these framings, specifically the environmental stuff. You're not letting them, you know, take an easy path. You know, like mm -hmm. that again, that mounted shot of the train chugging towards the working world. Um, you know, mm -hmm. has this like weight and adds like the nerves of um mm -hmm. of our young businessmen on his first day. Like, there's a lot of great mm -hmm. moments like that. But yeah, I was wondering. yeah, like, like that, like that, like that whole introductory sequence. What was super important about that was was uh, developing the um, the idea of of this sort of mechanism, this beehive of, of society. So, so I, I try to embrace a lot of sort of cyclical framing, um, you know, using kind of like, you know, the golden means sort of framing, you know, where there's kind of no beginning and no end and, um, you know, the stairwell and, and the movement of people and just creating the sense of, of like a societal pace and a societal movement that felt more sort of drone-like and less sort of individual. Because you know, it was it was very important to separate the idea of the individual from the from the the group, um, you know. Um, so yeah, I guess the potency of of framing and composition really helped. There's so many there's so many moments. There's so many. There's a lot more questions about technical stuff like camera moves and lighting and. But I think we should wrap it up for now. So maybe yeah, maybe I can. Uh, I can get Trevor to hook you guys up for another for another um another meeting, another get together. Just technical answers, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, nothing philosophical whatsoever. Technical. But guys, thank you both so much for taking the time. Yeah, man, thanks for having us. You know, Larkin, thank you, brother. You know, it's um, so cool to engage with you. You know, your work is uh, amazing, and you know, seeing um, your transition or not your transition, but just your your short form stuff and your long form stuff. I think it's um, it's so uh, valuable for for young cinematographers to see that juggling of the two worlds. So um, you know, big respect to you, brother, and um, you know, good luck with your, your 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 job that you're testing now. And Matt, thank you for having us, brother. I really appreciate the time, man. Nice one. Oh, that was great. And just just to really reiterate that you guys should you know should be really proud with with a the level of of mastery of the craft, but also you know. The fact that, you know, as we spoke about earlier, producing work that touches people, and uh, uh, we, I, and we all look forward to seeing more of what what's coming from both of you. So, thanks again. Yeah. Thanks, man. Well, thanks everyone for watching another episode of Film Roundtable and listening to another episode of Film Roundtable. Just don't forget to subscribe for more of these awesome conversations and um, uh, tune in again for the next for the next episode. Thanks again, guys. Talk to you soon. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks. Bye.